I have to tell the people about the Patreon. Yes, you do. Patreon.com slash SMDB. SMDB, like so many damn books. For just a dollar, you can join up and you get access to all the exclusive content that I record just for the Patreon. Also, you get to join the book club. The So Many Damn Books book club. It's been some of the best conversations I've had about books. It really always sounds like a blast. I usually like come home and just hear like giggles coming from the library. So it's a great time. You should join. And I would love to have more people join the fray. You may or may not know that Christopher runs this whole show himself on the hosting side, on the technical side, everything. This is a one-man show, truly. He does it all. Support your boy Christopher. Even at the dollar level really helps. So uh, join up patreon.com slash smdb i'd love to have you patreon.com slash smdb on with the show you feeling good you ready to go oh yeah i mean i'm as good as i'm gonna get (laughs) that's it was just an unusual day yeah well (laughs) i'm glad that you're topping it off with this podcast oh yeah well i think i'm kind of fired up like all my synapses are like bing bing so many, so many, so many damn books. Hello and welcome to So Many Damn Books, a blessing, a curse, a podcast. My name is Christopher and I'm joined actually in the damn library by Idra Novi. Idra, I'm so excited to have you here. It's been too long since I've actually had a live guest. I've been Zooming with my guests for so long, so I'm glad you're actually here sitting in front of me drinking a drink that I made for you. Idra Novi is the award-winning author of the novels Ways to Disappear and Those Who Knew. Her work has been translated into a dozen languages and she has written for The Atlantic, The New York Times, and The Los Angeles Times. She teaches fiction at Princeton University and in the MFA program at New York University. And you all, you knew all of those things, but maybe the people at home didn't. Yes, I do those things. I'm thrilled to be here in person. I'm so glad that you could be here. And I can't wait to talk about your new novel, Take What You Need. Your novel's out today. People should be listening to this on the way to the bookstore to pick this up because it's out. People can go get this wonderful book. And I am excited to talk to you about it. But before we get to that fun stuff, I want to talk to you about the drink that I made for you. The character in your book is a artist. She's a sculptor. And she makes these things called manglements that she calls manglements. And I was just thinking about how when I am wandering the Chelsea galleries, it's so nice to have something to be holding in your hand, to be looking at the art, and to have something to also be experiencing with a flavor. And so I was thinking, like, what sort of, what sort of drink would I pair Um, and so I was looking in my freezer, I found strawberries and strawberries have this sort of folkloric meaning of dedication because of all of the seeds that they can send out the dedication to the craft maybe. And then chamomile, um, is used in spells and in folklore magic to attract love. And I just think that art is so much about dedication and, um, attracting love and then, for just making a good drink it needed lemon (laughs) so strawberry chamomile lemon i'm calling this drink accompanying manglements 
amazing. And I think libidinal forces are a big factor in this book. So the fact that you put in some chamomile as an aphrodisiac feels spot on. <laughs> it's it's really delicious and it's the type of um it's the type of mocktail that I feel like is popping up on menus now that I feel like I would just order not because like I love I love a fun drink. I I just want a fun drink at all times. So the fact that we are now moving past like only the fun drinks have alcohol in them and now they're just making fun drinks that don't have alcohol in them. I'm, I like to join that, that world. I I'm, I'm part of that troop too, wanting to make those. And so this is something that anybody can enjoy. Making strawberry syrup is really fun and really easy. Um, and so this would be a fun one to try making at home. It's all delicious. Out there. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad to hear it. And I think it kind of matches the sort of sunset. On I the know it, it's sort of color. Uh, it's like a, in the same chromatic area as the book. Yeah, <laughs> you can go to so many damn uh, to look at all the drinks that I've ever made on this podcast uh, on the damn bar um, and check out everything, including this one. Or you can look at the Instagram for a picture of this drink if you want to do that. But what I want to do now is the next section of this show i'm very good at segues this is called what did you buy idra have you bought anything book or otherwise interesting recently I received a fantastic galley today of Gina Apostol's new novel, La Tercera. And what I did buy um, were slippers. Somebody says, what are you going to do to celebrate your new novel? And I um, was thinking what I really needed. And my dog had eaten my slippers. Oh. Um, and so I decided, because I'm a really wild person who drinks mocktails and buys slippers to celebrate <laughs> and reads, that's what I would get. Oh, that's so great. Uh, tell me about the Apostol book. What's, why is, what's going on with that? What's that about? Well, I just got it today. Okay. Do I know you, it's set you know in the Philippines. Okay. And I've been a big fan of Gina's earlier books. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking forward to reading this one. It looks like it's about several generations of families. Um, I think it's coming out in May. Nice. And then the slippers. Yeah. Those special in some way as well? Are those like a brand that you always go to? Well, nobody's eaten them yet. <laughs> that does make them pretty special. I like that. <laughs> um, I picked up a couple really exciting things. Um, I got Ruby Tandow's. Um, she was a... someone. Some the, the people who are fans of The Great British Baking Show might, might recognize her name. Uh, she was a finalist in 2013. And she's so since been sort of a, a vocal, like, that wasn't a super fun experience uh, for me. But she has, like many of these, the contestants have come out with various cookbooks and, and baking books. And this one, Cook As You Are, Recipes for Real Life, Hungry Cooks, and Messy Kitchens, it just seemed completely up my alley just because it's, uh, it's got a lot of variations on the recipes in there. And something that I thought was interesting was she was like, all the photos that are accompany these books are not just photos of food. They're also class markers and lifestyle markers and markers at the background. So she wanted to take that all out. And so it's mm -hmm. just illustrated. She And she does illustrate, she did, did get her illustrator to illustrate techniques and everything. So they're still in there. 
Um, but it's not so, you know, it has to look this way or you're messing up that, or you have to use this perfect tool or you're messing up. It's much more catch as catch can. And if you don't have this, you can substitute this in instead. Very fun approach to making a cookbook. And then I also got from the good people at Tin House, um, Katie Holton's book, The Language of Trees. And so this is a rewilding of literature and landscape. And Katie Holton created a um, alphabet out of trees and then gathered up these great collections of writing about the natural world. Um, and some of it she translates into her tree alphabet but it includes writing from folks like Ursula K. Le Guin and Robin Wall Kimmerer, as well as Plato, just all sorts of different people writing on nature and its power. Um, and it's just a beautiful, beautiful object. It's got that cool sort of three-quarter um, dust jacket with a neat, like, printed cloth-bound cover. It's a beautiful book. And I also love this question from William Corman. Why are there no trees in Paleolithic cave drawings? I mean, that hasn't occurred to me, but it's a good question. Yeah, absolutely. So that's what I got. Now, without further ado, your novel, Take What You Need. I would love to hear from you uh, how you describe this book to people. How do you tell someone who hasn't read it yet what it's about? I think my description of this book changes according to the time of day, maybe because it's the colors of the cover. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I would say that this is a novel about polarization and about disconnects between people over political and cultural divides and the question of whether art is a way to reconnect. Yeah, that's high level. It's about <laughs> welding. <laughs> it's about torching shit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean... This central relationship um, is between Leah and Jean. And Jean is an artist uh, and was her stepmother. Yes. And Leah is was her stepdaughter, but Leah's dad divorced or left Jean while she was very young. And I've never seen this type of relationship depicted before. This stepdaughter but they've left before you know like I feel like I've had some version of that but never quite where the stepmother is not part of the um, daughter's life anymore how did this come about what how did you start with this relationship well, it's a great question I I have a stepmother we're very close in fact she was at my house today but I've talked with her I think as I've gotten older about sort of the precarious place of being a stepmother because, you know, if, you know, she sort of was all in as a parent to me and to my sister. And I think that Jean in the novel was just all in as a mother to Leah and um, very different from my life. I mean, my mom's alive and she was one of several figures, but a very loving, devoted parent and still is. And so I think I was just thinking about, you know, 
certain conversations I've had with her and, and just what it means to be a stepmother. And then I was just thinking about the positions of, you know, women in art who are sort of seen as sort of suspect and precarious and, you know, even sort of like the role certainly of rural artists in our national imagination. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of ways that those sort of, you know, that sort of precarious um, status as of a parent, like they're not really step parents aren't really seen as full parents the way they are, you know, if you are a full on parent. Um, and also, you know, when a marriage dissolves and I've seen this happen with a number of friends where they're very, very close to kids and then they don't want to leave the marriage because they don't want to lose the relationship to kids becomes a reason to stay, which is what it is for Jean until it becomes intolerable, intolerable. So when she does leave Leah's father, she, you know, doesn't expect that she will also lose her connection but he's retaliatory and vengeful. And that's sort of what happens, which sadly I think often happens that children become, you know, these sort of ways of sort of enacting, you know, unresolved emotions between parents. It's so powerful the way that that is depicted. My, my first reading through of this book, I just was so connected to that connection and how, heartbreaking it must be to have this connection that you feel is so important for both of them because they both have this instant rapport and understanding of one another that's then ripped from them um but then this book is not about like it's not just like a i guess it's just not linear you know it's not it's it's completely these timelines are completely divorced from one another leah's timeline and, and her perspective and Jean's timeline and her perspective are completely separate. And that seems to me like another piece of the puzzle here that is um, just yours. What, can you talk about this this um, construction? It's funny. I didn't, I think that just intuitively felt right for the book. All of my books have had multiple points of view. And I think I'm just very interested in blind spots. And I also think that there's a way to create momentum in a book by switching narrators and creating tension through sort of the misperceptions or the ways that they mishear each other. So I think that why I like doing multiple points of view, one, I think it's inherently democratic because whenever you have multiple perspectives, you immediately see that every perspective has its limits as we all have limits, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that seems to me to sort of have an emotional truth to it that you sort of allows. And of course there's other ways to do that with one narrator through dialogue, through these other things. I'm not saying it's the only way to do it, but I think it just feels um, dynamic to me mm -hmm. to be able to do this sort of bring in these different voices that sort of, um, you know, shine a light on the limitations between them and these blind spots and the ways that they sort of um, are limited and how they can see their own mistakes and other people's mistakes and other people's lived realities. And so that is a way to, I think, create tension where you sort of move from one narrator to the other. And so, yes, they do jump in time. But I think in my mind, I saw them as building piece by piece on the story of who who they who they have become because of each other mm. and just from a pure craft or getting down to the page perspective were you going from in between their perspectives in your writing days as well or were you writing as far as you could with one um or and or did you write the whole side of gene and then the whole side of how did that how did you actually it's a great question with Ways to Disappear, when I wrote Ways to Disappear, I had just finished translating Clarice Lispector's The Passion According to G.H., where the last line of a chapter becomes the first line 
Clarice Lispector's last line of one chapter becomes the first line of the next one. And I played with that because I had just translated it and I was like still processing all of that where that happens in ways it disappear. But it wasn't a total line. Like one chapter would end with beans and then the next chapter would start with beans. Also, I love beans. And then when I was doing those, those who knew, which had more narrators, I was also sort of thinking about how some image or something that was, was sort of um, pending would then sort of continue in some subtle way with the next. I often broke scenes in the middle by switching narrators. I think it sort of has like a propulsive power. And so I, I think that's just become how I write novels because I think I come from poetry. So I'm sort of thinking in discrete sections. So I wrote everything in the order it is, building wow. on um, the ways that they sort of add, add to each other, you know, sort of a sense of accumulative power. I love this, what you were talking about with blind spots and this sort of cumulative power thing, because I think ways to disappear, there's just little blind spots that don't quite have the bearing that this one huge blind spot, because this novel is sort of like all around sort of this black hole of one thing that is coloring everything around it. Yes. But ways to disappear were a little, I mean, it's... Yeah. It was this comic moment, actually, that I ab absolutely loved from that, from Ways to Disappear, where your your character has bought a very floppy hat to keep the the sun out of her eyes because she is usually wearing... In Pittsburgh. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Brazil sunlight is not like Pittsburgh sunlight. And then everybody else who sees her in that hat is like, you look so stupid in that hat. Why on earth would you have bought that? And this is... This is not played for any sort of laughs. This is always like, I, I felt the heartbreak rise in me for every successive chapter of this book because I so wanted these characters to meet and have their catharsis. Yeah. And I think that, you know, maybe because I, you know, one gets older and writes more books that the catharsis when it happens is often not as you would imagine it. And it may not be with the actual person. It may be with the art they left behind. It may be with something else that isn't exactly as you imagined that moment of, of you know, reconciliation. It, I think, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to set it up in a way that is going to satisfy the way you expect. And so I think I was, didn't know how that was going to play out in, in the book when I was writing it. You know, I didn't know what, there were certain things that I think I was like, had a, they were a surprise for me. And I kind of just trusted that because then I hope they would be a surprise for the reader. <laughs> so, if you know too much, then um, you, you sort of lose a little wildness. Yeah. The wildness of this book is partially just from the art that's being created that Jean is making. And I felt like I could see it very, very clearly. Um, but I've been fascinated by the idea of art that's um, a reference to real art that you can just pull up versus um, art that the author made up. And I was just wondering how you feel about when you can't, when you're seeing art described and it exists, do you want to go and like pull it up and see that piece? Or are you happy with the artist's construction? I mean, the writer's construction of the art for yourself. That's a fascinating question. And so when you said it, I was like, oh, I think I think I like things that are ineffable and the sort of challenge. I mean, I think translation, you're always there's something that you have to imagine that is impossible to recreate. 
you know, so that if you're moving something from one language to another, there's something ineffable that you can't entirely recreate. You have to make something new in your own mind. And so I think in ways to disappear, because I was already thinking about translation, I ended up writing about this writer, Beatriz Yagoda, who's invented. Her books don't exist. And I had the fun of making up scenes, you know, about all these sons named Bruno. I mean, I loved writing those parts of her work. And then with those who knew I invented a whole country, you know, I invented this island and this nation and its history, which of course you can't go and visit and you can't look up the country because it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And so now I made up a body of work. So in a way, I think that there's something about um, coming up with some ineffable world, whether it's um, the world of Jean's towers that she makes in this book or Beatrice Yagoda's works, which don't exist, or the island nation where all those characters live, which doesn't exist anywhere. I think there's something about that that has become sort of part of what I think about when I'm making a a work of fiction, that it has some sort of metafictional aspect to it Mm -hmm. um, of like a world within a world that I can kind of play with. I think it it, it keeps it, um, it it, it gives you, so it's not just about characters because I think that just like straight realism doesn't compel me the way it is when I get to do something metafictional. Mm. I think that um, it adds this other layer of ways to just, to pursue the themes of the book when you add a metafictional layer. I had just finished reading this book and I was in Philadelphia and I was wondering, um, the artist Isaiah Zagar, who made this incredible installation called the Magic Gardens of, of Philadelphia, which is just this incredible mixed media. There's these tunnels and these bridges and it's all inlaid with broken ceramics and sometimes there's phrases and things and I thought it was so strange that I felt like this is so close to being what was depicted in your book but and you haven't I been. can't wait to you know I didn't set up a Philadelphia reading and I was like well I think I will have to go read in Philadelphia because I need to get to the Magic Gardens <laughs> yeah you, you absolutely need to I have been a number of times to the American Visionary Art Museum okay which of the sort of works you were describing are you know I love that it's called the American Visionary Art Museum because the idea is that they're not trying to create sort of a category for who gets to be in that museum and who is elsewhere. It's really about the quality of the work and the pursuit of a vision in the work as opposed to within a school or in conversation with anyone else. Like I think the whole idea of visionary art is that it isn't necessarily, um, you know, can be compared to things that are happening with contemporaries. It's really a vision of its own, mm-hmm. a part and that's what um, makes for visionary art. And so what you're saying about the Magic Gardens, what I think about with Jean's Vanglements is that they don't fit easily into any other sort of movement happening now. And of course, what a mind to be walking around in and being a part of. Uh, can you talk about creating Jean and, 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 and making her character into a living, breathing sort of person? Well, she's an amalgam of various actual living, breathing people and invention. Um, and I I came to really crave her company, especially during the pandemic, because this isn't a pandemic novel, but it is about isolation. And I think it's about um, the kind of risks you might take with art or what you might say when you're not thinking about the approval of other people. 
you know, and we're in this era of always watching and judging each other and editorializing on things. And I think part of me was sort of craving um, what it would be like, like what, 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 what art would I be making? What would I be writing if I wasn't anticipating an audience at any point? Like, mm. how does that shift the art that we make? And I was thinking about, you know, when I, I wrote a play when I was in high school and the only people who came to see it, cause I think it was, it was, no, it wasn't, you know, nobody paid attention to it. Like my, I went to a rural public high school. So, um, there was a lot of talk about football games, but nobody knew what the theater club was doing. And so the only people who came to the play that I wrote was like the only student written play I think ever performed to the school were the parents of the people in the play. And it didn't <laughs> matter. You know, it was like the whole auditorium was empty. And I think in my mind, I'm like, that's what I'm writing for. Hmm. I'm writing for like the 10 people who show up in Johnstown, Pennsylvania to see a play. And it has to sort of be about that and not about sort of, you know, approval seeking or um, trying to sort of anticipate how other people are going to react. And so I wanted that spirit to be part of Jean's art, to be part of the way she makes art because she's, you know, in rural, you know, Allegheny Highlands where she doesn't anticipate an audience. And so that frees her to sort of make art in this more instinctive way. As you're working on a new book, how much is the new book an answer to the last book that you wrote or the, or your, your body of work so far? Do you think of your past books when you're working on a new one and things you want to be, um, make sure you don't do or something, or is it, are you fully present? It's a great question. I, I mean, I don't want to be derivative. I don't want to become a caricature of myself where you're sort of trying to play off of things that you did well or that you felt confident about having written in a previous book. I think I want to be more contrarian and sort of always depart from the previous books in some way. You know, I think I've already run through three genres at this point. Mm -hmm. So I mean, I am already not, you know, I don't, I, that, that's just, I think I always am trying to be like, well, who, what can I come up with? that would just take everybody and myself by surprise. Because I think I kind of like coming from like a, a beginner's mindset or like, with the, you know, like that sort of like novice mindset mm. where you just feel a little trepidatious and I think a little humbled because there's something you're trying to do that you're not good at yet. Right. I really like that. Mm -hmm. I think there's something that um, feels risky about that and exciting. So I think in every book I've tried to do something that I haven't done before and that there's a very high chance I can't do. And I have started books I haven't finished. Mm -hmm. But I think when there is a risk of failure of trying something that you haven't done before, that um, that you feel a little wobbly and then you take more risks because it doesn't feel too familiar. Right. And yet you come back, I think, to this space of, the sort of gulf between intention and perception. Right. I feel like that that is the place that you, you're where I've noticed that your characters are often going. And I wondered if that is something that then bleeds over into your life too, of trying to see other people's perspectives um, on you or feeling like I don't understand that person's story or just making up stories for people as you're walking around. Well, this was the only book where I, I interviewed a lot of people and it was set in, you know, it's set in the, this invented fictional town in the Allegheny Highlands, but it's very similar to the town where my grandmother grew up, where my mother grew up. We all grew up in different towns, but all within short distance from each other. Um, so same area. And, um, 
but I haven't lived there in a long time. My brother lives there. My parents were there. I was like a lived place. I have friends who stayed there. I go back a lot. But I, especially because I was writing this like sort of 2016 on, you know, I started this novel before those news. So I've been at it a while. And um, then I had to come back to it. I was interviewing a lot of people and I actually thought I was going to do like an oral history, um, sort of like Voices of Chernobyl, you know, mm-hmm. but about like a politically divided town. That was, that was the idea. And then I was like, I interviewed this one woman who I met in her husband's barbershop and she made these amazing collages on cigar boxes and she went to flea markets at 4 30 in the morning and collected these things and made art and just was so drawn to art and would drive all over and just find beautiful things that just struck her and I just her spirit and her voice became part of the book and she's become a really good friend her name is Helen Golubich and so she, her voice became something that I would play Mm-hmm. before I wrote and I would hear her voice it's not her this character is not her but there was something about her vitality and her sort of um sort of a rascible personality and her passion for art that wasn't fueled by anything else around her she just had it in her and it's interesting I mean I don't have any other artists in my family you mm-hmm. know nobody I don't know why I have this need to wake up every morning and write things but I mean I wake up and I, I that's the only thing I when it's just like part of my neuroprocessing and it has always been, you know, I was always writing plays for kids in the neighborhood. I don't know why, like, why did that happen? Why, why, why am I so drawn to write things? I mean, there's no explanation from the people in my family before me or even after me. I'm just sort of an, a, you know, an Emily in that way. And so I was interested in Jean that way too. The same thing with this woman, Helen, like why are certain people like just have this compulsion to make art and it can't really be explained by context. I think there's something mysterious there that is just sort of their part came together and it just becomes part of their being and you know as much as we want to talk about sort of people and you know who they are and where they are there's something more that you can't it's a little more inexorable sorry i'm just thinking about that for letting that sit for a second you do thank an um a metal shop i do (laughs) yeah it made me wonder if you set out to try to make some art and just so you knew how it felt and how did that all go? Well, I learned to weld because I wanted to learn how to weld. Um, and my family has a scrapyard in, um, Western Pennsylvania, um, which is sort of the idea where I got the scrapyard where Jean gets her scrap metal is from her cousins. And so my mother's cousin runs the Novi scrapyard. We never had any material connection to it. It was patrilineal. Okay. So it went from my great-grandfather to his son to his son, etc. So I, I descend from the women of that family. So I've never had any material connection and actually had never been there. But I wanted to go because my namesake, Ida Novi, started the scrapyard in 1906. So in some way, cool. this became an homage, I think, to Ida Novi because I have her name except for the R. And I never met her. Um, and so I went back and saw the scrapyard and, um, I just didn't feel any connection to it. Cause I'm, I, I don't actually, I maybe am a little scrappy, but I don't actually know that much about scrap metal. <laughs> and so, um, this became a way welding with scrap metal to connect to this namesake I never met. Um, and to do something as, you know, as a writer and as an artist with scrap metal, because it wasn't my material legacy, but I can choose it as a legacy. <laughs> and so, and how was welding? It's so fun. I highly recommend torching things. <laughs> yeah. 
Yes. You get to cover your face. You have to put this thing over because the, the, um, when you, the, the light is so sharp, it can sort of burn your retina. So I really liked making art where you're actually sort of masked. It's kind of fun, mm-hmm. but then you can't actually see that well unless you have a very clean. So it's hard because it's very tricky work to sort of get the weld right. And if you do it too long, you burn through the metal. But if you do it not quite not enough, you don't melt it. So it really requires great skill and great eyesight. But I think you have this mask over. And so I had no idea the physical sort of challenges of doing it. And then they became really interesting to me. And I studied welding with three different people and they all had very different ideas about how to make a box, which is interesting because it's just six sides. Right. And that was fascinating to me. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of, it's like that old Carl Sagan, like how do you make a pie? where you first you have to create the universe like how do you make a box i just feel like you could you could make that a real philosophical question it really is it really is like sometimes when you write as as simple or straightforward as a pie might be or a box might be that actually it's very revealing of somebody's sensibility what do you do with six sides do you let some light in do you seal it up what do you do with your sides you know yeah do you leave the box open because otherwise it's a cube i don't know I mean, I think for Jean, she's been so boxed in by her father, by her ex-husband, by the choices she's had, um, that for her, letting light in is the reason for the box. Right. Your novels are all on the shorter side. And I love short novels, but these don't feel like other short novels like they don't feel like um they cut off at like halfway through or something they feel complete and like i don't know i just feel like they're so satisfying and i would be curious if you have sort of a philosophy about short novels or is this just how long your novels are thank you Uh, that's 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 very um validating to hear because i think we do often equate length with sort of heft in terms of reader experience but I don't really think that they are proportional and I I love short novels too simply because I don't like extra words I like concision I like understatement I like novels that move from intense sensory moments and I think that I'm not drawn to write connective tissue I don't need to get somebody in the door hang up the coat take off their shoes put on their slippers I'm a big fan of slippers you know but I don't need to see all of that I just I just you know and I know that sometimes you know, radical thoughts can happen when you hang up your coat and, you know, very tense, you know, provocative moments can happen in those in-between spaces, but not to just put the connective tissue in just because you need to lead from one scene to another. Like, I just think that those kinds of conventions aren't of interest to me as a writer. Hmm. How do you feel about when, when a novel shows up that people are talking about and it's like a thousand pages, are are you, do you feel like people need to edit or are you, um, Or can you fall into a long novel as well? I wish all those people good luck. (laughs) You you suggested a really interesting uh, companion piece. I mean, this is such a good book to read alongside um, having either before even and then reading your novel or afterwards um, on contemporary art by Cesar Ayra. Ayra. 
I, the yeah. that R is hard for me. And it's got a forward by friend of the show, Will Chancellor, and an afterward by friend of the show, Alexander Kleeman. So this was a very lovely book because I just felt like my friends were all showing me how great um, on contemporary art is. Why did you recommend this book in particular? Well, I'm a big fan of Cesar Ida, who, as you know, writes very short novels and <laughs> has a very different process from mine in that he doesn't edit. He just sort of sees it through and then just lets it be what it is, which I can't imagine because I'm an obsessive editor of everything. And I think probably for every page that's in this novel, I probably threw away 10. Like Whoa. I probably wrote a thousand pages. Yeah. You know, I have so many things that I threw away to get to these 250 pages. It's not that I don't write all those pages. I just don't keep them. <laughs> um, whereas for Cesar Ida, he does keep the pages and those are all the pages he has. I admire that. There's something audacious about it. Um, and this particular, I, 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 there's a couple ideas in uncontemporary art and this that I, um, that are great. And I think, well, Chancellor's introduction to it is so fascinating because he talks about as a kid, Will Chancellor, if not Cesar Ida, in the intro, seeing that warning on the mirror in the car as a child, which says that things are closer than they appear. And how it troubled him that adults who would be driving and seeing that um, weren't able to see things as they are. Mm -hmm. And that that, in fact, is something inherent to art is like that disjunct between things as they are and has as we perceive them. And that's something that sort of art can pursue. Mm -hmm. And um, I thought that was such a great introduction to this discussion of contemporary art because Cesar Ida sort of puts forth that art presents new values. But then halfway through the essay, he was like, who needs values? Yeah. Yeah. It. I mean, it's so funny that he doesn't edit because to me, he like... <laughs> he like fought with himself and he was like, eh, I don't know. And then just like stopped. Yeah. He sort of <laughs> undermines his own argument. He comes up with this great lofty idea and then he's like, maybe that's a load of crap. I mean, it's really, it's really sort of like, um, yeah, as you know, it, and I like that he sort of is, you know, open to questioning his own, you know, main argument. Um, you know? <laughs> so there's something sort of, you know, cheeky about it in a, in a likable way. But I, I think, what I was thinking about, what we're thinking about Jean, it was like, well, what new values is she putting forth in making art out of discards? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and is there a value in thinking about the value of art? Or is the whole point of art is that you don't have to make a case for its value? I, one of my favorite things about Jean is that she keeps up obsessively with the art world. She reads her art world magazines that come to her house cover to cover, and she knows all of these and, and plays with the ideas and thinks about them and, and throws those ideas out at other people that as though they're just going to be interested in grappling with them alongside her. And that's such a lovely person to um, meet and know, but she is not in the right environment for the, all of those ideas to flourish. And when, when he's talking about art, he's also looking at the art magazines and looking specifically at this thing that I always think about when I'm looking at my, like in, my iPhone pictures of after I went to a museum that, well, well these are terrible. <laughs> these aren't good pictures of art. And he, he was sort of looking at that mediation of why is that true? And sort of taking that apart. And that was the most 
that was the idea that I was, I'm still sort of pulling apart from myself. I think that this line where he's saying that a work of art has always implicitly contained its own reproduction. First mm -hmm. of all, I really like that because it's something to sort of, it's nearly a paradox. And I, yeah, I there's like, a lot to chew on. I like that a lot. But then he says, um, by being exposed to perception and memory, ghosts are inevitably released into space and time. And yes, like the ghost of that art, it's not, I mean, I remember um, seeing certain pieces of art that I couldn't have seen then because I look up the, how that piece of art moved across the country or was in some sort of tour and it couldn't have been there when I was thinking that I saw it there. So how did, how does that happen? And those sorts of ghosts or misrememberings alongside like, what did that mean for you then? And, and are you the same person stepping into the river? That type of question as well. All of that is right on the surface here. And it's one of the great things about little books that are just have an idea to chew on that suddenly you feel a little bit smarter for having grappled with a larger concept. That's not just like, Oh, I was trying to find something and I found it because he didn't, he doesn't find it. And no. neither does Will Chancellor, and neither does Alexander Kleeman at the end. No one's finding anything here. Right. They're just thinking. And they're not saying that these are finished thoughts either. Yes, but I think Will Chancellor points out that, you know, his intro is about a mirror, and Alexander Kleeman's, you know, afterward is about a line. So it's more about the pursuit. It's the looking into the mirror, seeing what it says, seeing your own face mixed up with this puzzling line, and Alexander Kleene is like, it's really about being in the line. It's not about where you get to. So even if, you know, you're waiting in the line and then somebody says, actually, we're closed. The experience of being in the line, although I hate lines, I, I would go another day. But I, I, I love the <laughs> metaphor of it is 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 that it's like, you know, it's 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 the pursuit of it, whether you actually get there or not. But I mean. I think that's true for Jean in this novel. Mm -hmm. You know, she's just it's the making that she's in it for. That Alexander Kleeman part about the line resonated very strongly with me very, very early in my ha having moved to New York, um, the, the Goldfinch, Donna Tartt's novel came out and, you know, as a fan, I wanted to go see the, see the piece, but there, it's a tiny, it was at a tiny gallery. Everyone was there to see that one. Everyone there is also a Donna Tartt fan, um, holding their book that has the <laughs> the art that they're going to go see, uh, which I loved. Um, but I didn't get in. I didn't get in that day that they, they were closing the, and I went home and I told my roommate at the time, like, oh, yeah, I didn't get in. He's like, New York is all about lines. You're going to wait in some great lines in New York. <laughs> there you have it. And I was just, I, I was re revisiting that idea. Also revisiting is Cesar Ida's notion that art, it has inside of it its own reproduction. There's an example because it ended up on the book and everyone came, sounds like, with the reproduction to see the original. Odd, but great. Yes, maybe. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> Free space to continue doing. That was another quote from this, that, that art is this free space that is just, just keep making things happen. Yeah. That's all you need. And actually, physically, 
making things. And I think I was drawn to that too, in part because during the pandemic, when we couldn't go wait in lines to go see exhibits, people were looking at art online. It just wasn't as satisfying. Oh. You're not there in your body experiencing the sculpture. You can't walk around it. You can't, you know, talk, talk about it. You can't look at it and look back. You can't just sort of be alone with it and see it, the full color and the, the everything about it. And so I think that was also something that I was sort of craving was just thinking about the physical presence of a work of art and imagining the experience of both making it and seeing it. And I, I just missed that so much. Mm. Yeah. I remember taking some amount of I guess emotional damage or something on the days that they um during the pandemic museums would breathlessly announce that they've created a fantastic virtual tour of and I was just thinking no that's not at all it and to even pretend like that is what we all want seems like antithetical to your whole mission so I'm yeah. not sure I'm not sure I yeah I I remember thinking like I don't, I don't even have a good enough monitor to to correctly display some of these things. Like, I'm not even going to see the right color here. No. You know, I spoke to the head, of the, uh, the new head, because um, was it Barbara Hofberger, who was the original founder of the American Visionary Art Museum, and there's a new woman who's um, taken over. And when I spoke with her, she was, I was asking her, you know, there's a lot more museums that you know they were like oh are people going to come back after the pandemic people have absolutely come back they love great lines and <laughs> they're in them having great experiences can write about them as afterwards someday and then you also have you know a lot more outsider artists or visionary artists who are off the grid artists who are being you know who, whose work is being shown in what is more you know sort of institutions that usually sort of only do artists that are sort of part of, you know, institutionalized groups. Mm -hmm. And I asked her about that. And I was like, well, what is the role of like at the American Visionary Art Museum or when these museums are trying to make a place for that? She's like, well, you know, I think they're trying to make it for their um, inclusiveness. But actually, the American Visionary Art Museum was doing it all along. Mm -hmm. um, and it was always the, the most diverse museum mm -hmm. in Baltimore and always the one that had the most women, not because anyone was counting, but simply because that was who was shut out of the institutional shows. Right. And those were people who were sort of shut out of experiences because they were caretakers, because um, they didn't have access, because they had to do other jobs. And so art happened because they were into it for the making. Hmm. I'm so glad that every, that whatever dire ideas people had about what people wouldn't come back to is they've all been wrong. Everybody wanted they've all been wrong. Everybody wanted to come back and, and live their lives as they used to. They didn't, we didn't learn anything from the pandemic. So that's fine. Even, <laughs> even gross gyms, people went back to. <laughs> I know they did. Didn't they? <laughs> well, you've written about writers, translator, uh, translators, artists, political activists, bookstore owners i feel like there are a few art artistic and playwrights yes freddie's playwright i got to pretend to be a playwright too oh so. that's right basically i'm asking uh, you know who who what sort of artistic temperament are you thinking about trying to chronicle next if you could say puppets <laughs> puppets 
Wow. Do you want to say more there or do you want to just let that hang in the ether by the strings that it hold it up? Okay. <laughs> well, that's great. I would be able to sit here and talk to you for ages and ages, but the next thing to happen regularly on this podcast is recommendations and the people need to hear what you would recommend to them. What do you recommend from the world? It can be books, um, but maybe you have other recommendations. could be anything. I would recommend Nona Fernandez's new book, Voyager, from coming out from Grey Wolf, I think, this week. I think she's an under-recognized, incredibly inventive Chilean writer. I would recommend Fennel, which I think people don't eat as much as they should. It's delicious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Makes a great soup. Fennel and leeks. Love it. Yeah. It's it's sort of curious how little fennel we eat when it actually doesn't go bad. You can have it for a long time. Yeah. I think if you have a small fridge, fennel's the way to go. <laughs> okay. Uh, I am going to recommend uh, a song. Uh, I heard this song today. I've played it too many times over and over. It's called Who the Hell is Edgar? It's Austria's entry into the Eurovision contest this year by an artist named uh, Teya and Selena. And one of them finds themselves um, possessed by the ghost of Edgar Allan Poe. And that is the basis of their song for the Eurovision song competition. I'm going to have to write that down. It's so good and so funny. I can't wait to hear this. I have another book recommendation to add. Oh, good. Is 70 Times 7 by Alex Marr that's coming out at the end of March. Her last book was about witches in America. It's fantastic. And this is a very different book. I think that it's um, a deep dive sort of looking at um, the ways we think about forgiveness or our lack of forgiveness or mercy in terms of people uh, who were convicted of homicide and especially for youth who are convicted of homicide and what kind of country we are when we're in the business of, you know, prosecuting children for the rest of their lives. And as sort of hard and painful, it's actually in some ways a book about what it means to be capable of mercy. It's a really moving book. So oh, I would wow. recommend it. That's so, um, that's so, so different <laughs> than Witches so in America. So different. Yes. Which I, I've, read that book a few times um alex mar is great i'm definitely going to be checking that out and then i'm going to recommend everybody needs to go and buy take what you need it's an incredible book it moved me so much and i've already been rereading passages and everything it really caught me by complete surprise um your publicist was sort of dogged in getting me to read it and i'm so glad she was because I loved it. And so thank you for writing it. So everybody who is listening, that's one thing you need to do. Another thing you should do is uh, write a review on iTunes of this show because I need reviews of the show to keep it up in all of the algorithms and all of that. And it's also really nice when people go to patreon.com slash smdb and support the show there. You get special things like special excerpts of the show that I haven't put anywhere else as well as I like to, um, there's going to be a book club um, that you can join and 
talk books with other like-minded book lovers. So come and join the fun there. And Idra, thank you so much for hanging out with me. This has been a total blast. I'm so glad you could actually hang out. Reminds me why I started making this show in the first place. So thank you. Well, thank you for having me. I had a great time too. Wonderful.